Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 20, if you will. Isaiah chapter 20. We'll say very few comments about this chapter because it's pretty self-explanatory. Maybe just make one statement about it. But we referred to it in our last lesson. But let me just read the 20th chapter. And when you come to the point that Isaiah is going around naked and barefoot, don't get the idea he's completely in the nude because he has a loincloth about, about him and he's dressed like a prisoner of war and illustrating something here we'll get to. But anyway, we'll make a comment or two on the 20th chapter and then go on to the 21st. In verse 1 of chapter 20 of Isaiah, it says, In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him and fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time spake the Lord by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loose the sackcloth from off thy loins and put off thy shoe from thy foot. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Like as my servant Isaiah hath walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder upon Egypt and upon Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians, the Egyptians prisoners, and the Ethiopians captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, even with their buttocks uncovered, to the shame of Egypt, and they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia their expectation, and of Egypt their glory. And the inhabitant of this isle shall say in that day, Behold, such is our expectation, whether we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? Now then, the prophet here stripped and clothed like a prisoner of war illustrates what would happen to Egypt. And by the way, literal nudity is unlikely concerning Isaiah in this situation. And so he was representing exactly what would happen uh, to Egypt, that they would be more or less stripped and they would be uh, taken as prisoners. And uh, so that would be the end of the situation. And this was a sign language or a dramatization, you might say, and acting out of what would happen, and it was a prophecy of what would happen to them. Now, the 21st chapter, we have in the first ten verses a prophecy against Babylon. There are three things in this 21st chapter if you're looking at it. A prophecy against Babylon, verses 1 through 10. And if you'll notice verse 11, you have a prophecy against Edom. We'll get into the name, Duma, in a little bit when we expound it. And then in verses 13 through 17, a prophecy against Arabia. So you have three judgments that are coming upon these three different nations. Babylon and Edom and Arabia. And these divisions, verses 1 through 10, verses 11 and 12, verses 13 through 17. Three things. Now then we'll take the first section verse by verse and look at it. And then we may say some more things about it as we go along. But uh, let's look at verse 1. The burden of the desert of the sea, as whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it cometh from the desert, from a terrible land. The desert of the sea, perhaps a derogatory title for Babylon, the sea land. Quotation, the sea land. The wilderness of the sea describes the area around Babylon. Describes the area... And it was a plain as vast as the sea. So it wasn't really water. 
but it was the wilderness, the burden of the desert of the sea. So it was like a, a huge desert scene. And in verse uh, 1, it says, As whirlwinds in the south, like the whirlwind, the Assyrians will come and overwhelm Babylon. And they would come and overwhelm Babylon like a whirlwind would come in the south that passed through. So it cometh from the desert, from a terrible land. So you can see where the whirlwind will come from. By the way, they just had a terrible tornado down near Waco. If you've been looking at the news, killed, what, 27 or some odd people? 32 now, the count. And uh, they still haven't come to the end of uh, all the uh, damage that's done. But tornadoes, storms can do terrible damage. And, uh, of course, what is pictured here is a great Assyrian invasion and uh, damage that would come to them. And like a whirlwind, the Assyrians would come in and overwhelm Babylon. Now, verse 2 says, A grievous vision is declared unto me. The treacherous dealer dealeth treacherously. That's common, isn't it? The treacherous dealer always deals treacherously. When you find a person that has that character and nature, he's going to be the kind that gives out that kind of a treacherous uh, action. And the spoiler spoileth. Go up, O Elam, besiege, O Media. All the sighing thereof have I made to cease. Now, when he says, go up, O Elam, actually, Elam is Persia. And then it says, besiege, O Media. So, remember, when the uh, destruction of Babylon did come, who were the Medes and the Persians? Remember, in the book of Daniel, where it says, the kingdom shall be taken from thee and give to the Medes and the Persians. And Isaiah predicted this before it ever happened. And he said that they would come up. And by the way, Elam is another way of addressing Persia. So verse 3 says, Therefore are my loins filled with pain. Pangs have I taken hold upon me as the pangs of a woman that travaileth. I was bowed down at the hearing of it. I was dismayed at the seeing of it. So Isaiah is just amazed at this and dumbfounded, so to speak, at the fact that all of this is going to happen. This terrible judgment is going to come. And he was the one that is being identified in verse 3 is the way he felt about this coming judgment. You know, God's preachers and people, though we know that God is a God of judgment, we should be pained to hear that he has to bring judgment upon people. And Isaiah, wonderful prophet of God, and yet uh, and he, uh, uh, one that predicted the judgment and spoke of it and dramatized the judgment, as we said before in the 20th chapter, and that was the judgment upon Egypt. But in this chapter, upon Babylon. And now he's pained, he says. Have you ever heard? I've heard in my lifetime. Preachers preach on hell as if they didn't care if you went there. I've heard that. And I, I don't think that's the proper motive or attitude or, or aspiration or the feeling about it. When you preach on hell, make sure you preach it with a word of caution and come to the Lord and, and be redeemed and delivered from such judgment as is in the future. So don't do it with a smile on your face and a, and a joy in your heart. That's not the right attitude, is it? We're all God's creatures, and God is not willing, listen, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And it's your business and mine to at least have compassion 
and warn of a judgment. And Isaiah would warn, but notice this word again. Therefore are my loins filled with pain. In other words, his whole body. My loins filled with pain. Pangs have I taken, have taken hold upon me. As the pangs of a woman that travaileth. This shows that the judgment was imminent, that it was going to come as pains, travail pains come upon a woman. I was bowed down at the hearing of it, and he says, I was dismayed at the seeing of it. So there's imminent judgment. And then he says in verse 4, My heart panted, fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure hath, turned, uh, hath he turned into, into fear unto me. Then he begins to warn in verse 5. He warns them and tells them to prepare. Prepare the table. Watch in the watchtower. In other words, be ready for the enemy. Eat and drink. Arise, ye princes, and anoint the shield. Anoint the shield meant all the shield or all the leather shield. Make it supple and ready for battle. They had leather shields. And of course, if they were brittle and uh, had grown without oil, they would break apart or they were more uh, likely to not be able to stand the uh, weapon that would be thrown against them. But if they were all, the leather would be tough and it would be hard to penetrate. So when it says anoint the shield, they were to prepare for battle in this way. Prepare their weapons and their defense for battle. Verse 6 says, For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Go set a watchman, let him de- declare what he seeth. Now Isaiah was the Lord's watchman. Preachers are to be God's watchmen. Not that we're prophets and foresee and for tell the future as did the prophets of old. But we know that the Bible predicts judgments that are coming. We know that when we preach the Word, we're to watch for the souls of men and tell them of of God's impending judgment and tell them uh, of the way of salvation and the way of deliverance. And we should do that uh, in the way of being a watchman. And of course, none of us can be compared to Isaiah because he not only foresaw what was going to happen, but he, he prophesied of what was going to happen in the sense that it did literally actually happen in the historical fulfillment of it. And there's future applications to many of the things that Isaiah spoke of. And we'll get to some of those later on, but a lot of it was historically fulfilled in 586, I believe it was, B.C., and different dates that I can give you later on from some notes that I have. But you'll see that he was a watchman. Let him declare what he seeth. So here's what Isaiah said he saw. He saw a chariot with a couple of horsemen, a chariot of asses, a chariot of camels, and he hearkened diligently with much heed. Now then, and he cried, A lion, my Lord. In other words, he saw the chariots were instruments of war. They had their chariots that went out to war. Remember, it says some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the Lord our God to fight our battles. So some men lean on the arm of the flesh to save them or upon their military uh, might to save them. And uh, most of us should realize that regardless of the military might of any nation, they're susceptible to defeat. And we need to learn that lesson too. We quote often, and I, every time I quote it, I see Paul look up. When I said the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happeneth to them all. And you know the race should be to the swift, shouldn't it? And the battle should be to the strong. But 
time and chance happens to them all. So God is the is the uh, overseer of all providential dealings, and He can deal with nations and men as He sees fit. And sometimes the greater the nation, the harder the fall. And the greater the number, the fewer it takes to defeat them. And that doesn't ordinarily hold true, does it? You ordinarily have to have an army with a great number and great power to go out against another army as powerful, or a little less powerful or more powerful. But it's not always the case. God has a way of diverting things and changing things. I remember one instance in the Old Testament. You remember when they went out to battle and... The army of Syria was uh, roundabout, and uh, and the whole situation was against God's people, and and uh, they were without water. The, all the hosts of the enemy, and uh, what happened? God told His people, He says, "You make this valley full of ditches." He says, "You'll have water," and He says, "You'll not see wind nor rain, but in the morning this valley will be filled with water." And in the morning, the, the water came down from above, and it flooded all their ditches that they had dug. And there was water for the host and for the, all the cattle and all the uh, people and everyone. And then the enemy, Edom, I believe it was, if you look back, I can't recall all the different factions in this war that was going on. Uh, off the top of my head, but I believe it was Edom. They looked over and they saw this valley red because the sun was shining on that water and they thought all their enemy was slain. And so they went in to fight them and they come to find out they were none of them hurt and they put them to pursue, put them to fl- flight. So God is able to turn things around with just a, such a small thing, and yet it's a large thing, as sending floods of water down the canyon and flooding all these ditches. By the way, there's a good lesson in that. When God said, you know, make this valley full of ditches, He told the people that they had a work to do, and it was a very a hard work, and it was a very humiliating work, but it was a very rewarding work. That might apply to you and I. Someone said, I won't dig ditches. I will if God will fill them full of water. And, you know, give me the victory. And... Humble yourself, therefore, in the sight of God, and He'll lift you up. So don't worry about what you do. Just do it with all your might. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Another quotation from the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, let's go on with this. It says uh, in verse 8, He said, He cried, A lion. Now, He's talking about a lion, the, the enemy, the king of the forest. A lion, my Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime, and I am set in my ward whole nights. And behold, here cometh a chariot of men with a couple of horsemen. And he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And and all the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. What's he say? In verse 9 he speaks of, I set my whole ward, I set my ward whole nights. Night is symbolical of evil, of death, of judgment, of hell, and eternal punishment. Night is darkness. And yet God says a further thing in verse 9. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. It's a dark day for Babylon. All the graven images of her gods. Babylon's gods gods were unable to aid in, in her defense. You see, all the gods of this world are vain and powerless. We get accused of, as Christians of worshiping only one God. God the Father, 
the Son and the Holy Spirit, the one and true God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God of uh, Christians. And uh, they say, I hear many times on some of the news programs where they say, well, don't you know there are other religions in the world? Yes, I do. I know there's multiplied number of religions in the world. And then you hear other people speak of Christianity as a mythological uh, religion, as if it were a myth, the myth of Christ. The Bible gives me the only uh, truth that I can lay hold upon, and uh, God's revelation to man is found here, and I haven't found anything in here to be untrue. So when, when I have the whole uh, revelation that is true, and I know a lot of the other things that men give you and other religions are not true, and they won't stand the test of, of, of the truth, but the Bible does. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. This is God's revelation to man. And I'm not talking about being inspired to write a poem or write a song or whatever. That's that's good feeling, isn't it, to be thus inspired. But that's not divinely inspired. That is inspired to do a certain job. But this, this is God's inspiration. God breathed. And there's a great deal of difference. Preachers get inspired to, and, and you know, uh, to preach their uh, message. But that doesn't mean that their message is divinely inspired. It means when they preach the Word, they may have a, a good feeling about it and, and feel really like they have a message from God because it is from God. But on the other hand, it's not divinely inspired except for His Word. There's a lot of claiming extra inspiration and revelation today. But the Bible says, do not add to His Word at all. And if it were true that men were having revelations today, so as that they could claim divine inspiration for those revelations, then we would, have, we would keep adding to the Bible every time they had one, wouldn't we? First thing you know, we'd have a Bible so big we couldn't carry it. In fact, it'd be larger than our library, according to some. And we have one group now that will give you a King James Version of the Bible, but I'll bet you anything, and if you'll pardon the expression, that they'll send along the Book of Mormon with it if they give you that King James Version of the Bible. And they've used this, they've used this way to, to get you nowadays is we'll send you a King James Version of the Bible. But then what? We're going to give you that other testament. This up-to-date one to go along with it. And that's the Book of Mormon. And if God's revelation was not complete here, well then, why would He say not to add to it? It was complete. And the Book of Mormon, if you read it, you can... And I've got a couple of copies of it for study purposes. But anyway, if you would read it, you would find that it doesn't read anything like this. And you can tell the difference in the way it's even read and especially what it teaches. So anyway, we won't go into all that. That's another subject matter altogether. But let's go down here to verse um, 9. He says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, and the graven images of her gods he hath broken unto the ground. So all the graven images and all the gods of this world are powerless to stand before God. We find that many times in the Old Testament. Remember old Dagon, the... God that fell, the image that fell flat of his face and broke all to pieces. We find that. All her gods, all the graven images of her gods, he had broken unto the ground. So you might realize that all the 
false gods in this world are ultimately going to be broken before God Almighty. In fact, this Babylon is fallen, is fallen, is predicted over in the book of Revelation. And there is a final fall of that great Babylon in Revelation that will rise up in the last days during the tribulation period. And we haven't come to that time yet because before we come to that time, God's people are going to be taken out of this world. And so we haven't gotten there yet. And then in verse 10 he says, O my threshing and the corn of my floor, that which I have heard of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have I declared unto you. God is like a one that threshes the impurities and brings out the pure. Verses 11 and 12 have to do with Edom. It says, The burden of Duma he calleth to me out of Seir. Now Seir is the principal mount of Edom south of the, uh, of the Dead Sea. So he says, The burden of Duma he calleth to me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? We spoke of the night a little bit ago. So Duma and Seir are names for Edom. Isaiah, and we could go back to Numbers 24, verse 18. I won't take time to give you all references, but if you'd like those references later, I'll give you those references. But sometimes it becomes a little too lengthy to do that. But uh, Numbers 24, 18 would explain why Duma and Seir are names for Edom. But uh, Isaiah moved one letter in the Hebrew word, A-D-O-M, and created D-U-M-A, which means stillness or silence. Silence. And it was his way of saying, Edom will be silent. It will be no more. There will be silence. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, whose nickname was Red. Remember? Edom. And that's in Genesis 25, verse 24, 21 through 34. You can read a whole passage of Scripture. And Edom was a rugged land of red sandstone, and his people, her people, were bitterly hostile to the Jews. Psalm 137, verse 7. And Isaiah was the watchman on the wall. Look at this, verse 11. He calleth me out of Seir, watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, the morning cometh, and also the night. And then he gives a message. We'll get into that in the morning, in a, in a moment. So what time of night was it? The advance of the Assyrian army had brought fearful darkness to the nations. And Edom wanted to know if there was any hope or any light. And the prophet's reply was brief, but it was adequate. It was both informative and it was giving an invitation. He says, Morning was coming because Assyria would be defeated by God in the fields of Judah. But the morning would not last, for Babylon would take Assyria's place and further darkness would come to the nations. Then Isaiah added something else, an invitation consisting of three simple words. Notice what he said in verse 12. If you will inquire, inquire, and that's, we spell it I-N-Q-U-I-R-E, and the Bible says E-N-Q-U-I-R-E, return and come. What did he say? Inquire, return, and come. He says, seek the Lord. The prophet was urging people to seek God in view of the darkness that was coming. Upon all the nations. In other words, to turn from sin and return to Him. Come to Him and He will receive you. There would be only a brief day of salvation. They would have their opportunity. And only a brief day of salvation would dawn and they had better use use this opportunity or it would pass away. You know, there's a gospel message in this. It was a message for Israel. It was a message for God's people. 
it was a message here for for uh, Edom if they would but turn to God. It's a message for any nation or people that will turn to God. It's a message today for Christians that will seek the Lord in time of darkness. It's a message especially for sinners to turn from sin and return to God. The Bible says what? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The Bible says, come now, Isaiah 1.18. He started out with this same method of preaching, didn't he? Isaiah said, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. That's what the Lord is saying here. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, and though they be red like crimson. The word there means double dyed red. They shall be as wool. What? Sin is red. And though they be red like crimson, that means that we are double dyed sinners. D-Y-E-D. Dyed with a deep red that cannot be washed out. So that we're sinners by nature and there's no question about it. That can't be removed. And we're sinners by choice. And the only way that any sin can be removed is through the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any difference who or what, in what part of the world, or what religion, or what race, creed, or color, whatever. The only redemption in this world that's offered under heaven is through the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people say, well, you people sure are narrow-minded. Well, I'm just as narrow as the Bible and just as broad as the Bible. It's broad enough to say, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But it's narrow enough to say, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven. I take that, it means on earth, don't you? Given among men, whereby we must be saved. It doesn't say this is one way you can choose and... and this will lead us. The Bible says there is a way, twice over in Proverbs, I believe it's 12, 14, or 14, 12, and then 16, 14, or twice over. In a couple of chapters in Proverbs, you'll find it says there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And, there, and then it says it changes a little bit. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, and the end thereof are the ways of death. So the the thing about you find that there is a way, notice singular, that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways, plural. So the way that seems right to one man, he may think it's right. The way that seems right to another man, he thinks it may be right. But each man has his way, but the end thereof of all these ways, the ways, are the ways plural of death because there's only one way we preach that way is through the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's only through faith in him that we have redemption and that faith and that redemption is offered to everyone who will receive him so you talk about narrow-minded talk about broad-minded you can make it any way you want to right because we are narrow-minded in one way and we're broad-minded in another way because it's exactly what the bible teaches that God wants us to be saved. He wants people to be saved. But they have to come the straight and narrow way to be saved. Okay? It says, The watchman said, The morning cometh and also the night. If ye will inquire, inquire ye. If you want to do that, it's your will. It's your purpose. It's your privilege. Return and come, he says. And then we come to the last section of this, uh, this uh, 21st chapter. It's the burden of Arabia. I want you to notice. The burden of Arabia. It begins in verse 13. It says, The burden of Arabia 
In the forest in Arabia shall you lodge, O ye traveling companies of Dedanim. Now the Dedanites, Dedanites, if you want to pronounce it that way, Dedanites, were an Arab tribe. And it says the inhabitants of the land of, of Tima. Tima was a tribe that was located in an Arabian oasis. And if you'll notice, the context shows that. The inhabitants of the land of Tima brought water to him that was thirsty. Well, they had an oasis of water. They had plenty of water. Isn't it well that those who are uh, well provided with the uh, things of nature, and especially water, is the most essential to go to the ones that are thirsty. That's what they were willing to do. The inhabitants of the land of Tima brought water to him that was thirsty. They prevented with their bread him that fled. In other words, all the refugees, all those that needed help, there was provision made for them. Well, you say, well, preacher, what does that have to do with us? We have the bread of life and the water of life. And shall we just keep it to ourselves or shall we share it with someone else? Remember the woman of Samaria that came, uh, that Jesus met at the well, Jacob's well? And Jesus asked, said, give me to drink. She said, sir, he says, you don't, you have nothing to draw with. Jesus said, I'll give you some water that you neither come hither to draw. She had a pitcher, didn't she? And she wanted to fill that full of water. Jesus said to her, you know, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, so to speak, you would what? ask of him and he would have given thee living water. That's when she told him she didn't, he didn't have anything to give her living water. Find out that, that Jesus said, this living water, she wanted some of that living water. Jesus says, all right, if you want this living water, what? Go call your husband and bring him, and I'll give you both some living water. She said, sir, I have no husband. You know, this is what Jesus was getting at. He is the light of the world, and light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended in not, and light always reveals sin. You see, there's some folks that want to hear what they want to hear instead of what the Bible wants them to hear. Reminds me of my son. He Last night he called and he says, Dad, I have a presentation to make tomorrow. And he says, you know, I know exactly what the feeling is going to be. He says, I think that some of them had rather hear a fairy tale than the facts that I'm going to give them. And that's the way folks are, you know. And you know, it's just, it sounds better, you know. It sounds more flowery and more susceptible, acceptable. And they say, well, you know, that sounds good. I like that. I like the tone of his voice and I liked all the, the compliments he gave us. And, but he, when he lays it on the line, say, folks, we've got to do this and we've got to do that and we've got to do something else. And this is a necessity. This is a fact. You know, I said, Darrell, don't worry about that. I, I face that kind of situation every time I get up to preach. He says, you do, don't you, Daddy? And I says, yeah. I says, every time I get up to preach, you either tell people what the Bible says or what they'd like to hear. But thank God, there's some that want to hear the truth and want to hear the Bible. And that's what I told him. I says, some of those people will want to hear what you say. And so we appreciate those that do. 
So uh, what we're talking about is we have the water of life to give. Jesus gave this woman living water. And by the way, he revealed her sin first. She says, sir, sir, I have uh, no husband. He says, you, that's true. He says, but the one that you now have. I have had, you have had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. So she wasn't even married now. So she, she was in trouble, wasn't she? She had to come clean and tell the whole story. Well, anyway, her last word was this. She went away into the city. She left her water pot. The Lord gave her some living water inside. And she said, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. He revealed my sin. Is not this the Christ? She knew that when Christ comes, he would be able to do those things. And she believed that he was the Christ. All right, let's get back to this in verse uh, 13. The burden of Arab uh, Arabia in the force of, of Arabia shall you lodge, O you traveling companies of Dedan, Dedanum. The inhabitants of the land of Tema brought water to him that was thirsty. They pre- prevented with their bread him that fled. So they provided bread and water. For they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the grievousness of war. War is grievous, isn't it? For thus hath the Lord said unto me, Within a year, according to the years of an hireling, all the, and all the glory of Kedar. Now, Kedar was the son of, of Ishmael, and Kedar was a tribe of northern Arabia. And it says, all the glory of Kedar shall fail, and the residue of the number of archers, and the mighty, men, the mighty men of the children of Kedar shall diminish. For the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. What he's saying is that they're going to be fewer in number, and uh, they're going to face defeat, and they're going to be diminished. Well, we pick up with chapter 22, the burden of the valley of vision, in our next lesson. Chapter 23.